Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates, where I talk to my musical heroes and peers about their creative process and their music. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash Pablo Held. And to keep informed about the interviews, my music and everything else that I'm up to, subscribe to my newsletter at pabloheld.com. Okay, let's start investigating. Grant Blake, George Gazon, Danilo Perez. Can you tell me a little oh, bit yeah. about your some of the the important lessons that you got from maybe also other teachers? It's something I I love talking about because I just it's going to take the rest of my life to like pay back that debt, you know. And I don't even know how I'm going to do it, but like mm -hmm. I'm I'm not trying to say it's straight that the relationships with them are it was straightforward because it was not at all, you know. There was a lot of rebellion and and uh, insecurity and but I I think at the time I didn't know that that's okay. I think it's a it's a relationship so it's going to be complicated. But with George um you know I started studying with George. I I had an amazing saxophone teacher from when I started the instrument when I was 11 and he I just It's amazing to me what he how, how he was able to bring me into the fold of jazz, you know, in such a gentle way. Um, and um, he was such an amazing teacher. And the most amazing thing about him is that when I got to like maybe 16 years old, he he was like, you need to find another teacher, you know. Hmm. And I don't really know exactly why. I don't think it was because I... You know, we kept having lessons together, but maybe it was something about he, he wanted me to be exposed to something different or I don't know. Also, where I lived was a bit provincial. and Maybe he was like, this will be an excuse to get out and have experiences elsewhere. I don't know. But God bless him for for having the, you know, I mean, just no ego to be able to do that, you know. And he had so much still to teach me, I'm sure. But um, so like I had a friend who was studying with Garzon going to Boston. It's like a two hour drive to get there to, to Garzon. And so I knew it was a thing, you know, I knew it was a thing. And and he there was I was very lucky that there was this jazz club. I, I mean, when I where I grew up, Pablo, I can't tell you. It's like to put this in context, like it was a very small city, you know, and like in when I was growing up, like it's not the kind of place you'd expect this club to exist, but it was just by chance that this, this guy, Paul Lichter, who's was another important like mentor figure for me. He just, he's from Detroit and like found his way to Portland, Maine and opened this club called cafe. No, I mean, you might've even heard of it from people like Ben. It was like, it was this like Mecca of hipness that mm. shouldn't have existed in Portland, you know? And, and Paul, was connected to people who were in New York and Boston. And then when Ben Street moved to, well, when he went to Boston and then New York, he was also kind of a conduit for these musicians. So Garzon was coming and playing with the Fringe at Cafe No. So I was aware of him a little bit, you know. He was, And he liked coming to Portland and hanging out. And um, so I started lessons with him. And when I was 16, I started driving, my dad was driving me actually to Boston 
on the weekends on Saturdays to have lessons with him. Mm-hmm. And it was just like from the word go, man, it was like he there was so much there was no question like there was no yeah he, he just gave it all to me on the first day you know <laughs> it was just like there was no initiation it was and he, and it was total trust on his part that it was fine to give mm. me all this stuff and um you know and i think because i was the age i was he took uh, uh the responsibility on you know um to bring me into this stuff and uh yeah and i'm still working on it like during lockdown i was getting more into practicing because i couldn't come to the studio i couldn't work on on stuff in the studio and i went back to this sheet that he gave me on our first lesson angular references you know it's two what? sheets of a4 all eighth notes just like his thing before it was like an earlier version of what he's doing now. Um, and he was just like, read this. It was like an etude, you know, like learn it sort of thing. And I worked on, uh, worked on it, well, hours and hours, you know. And then I went back to it uh, during lockdown. I was practicing it again. And I just like dropped him a line. I was like, George, like, <laughs> it's like, this is like, you know, a long time on. I've been dealing with the same sheet, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was a, there was no theory to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm. No theory. You know, there was no, um, and, you know, and George can do theory, you know, he's like a theorist in a way, you know, um, in his, but he, I think he was sensitive to the fact that I was, that I was not going to respond to like that level of abstraction. Mm. So it was just like, learn this sound, you know. And I, I, something about it made sense to me, probably because my understanding of harmony was so underdeveloped at that point that it, it wasn't weird for me to think about like dissonance. I, I didn't have a problem with that, you know. Mm-hmm. So my playing got really out really early, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and also the stuff I was hearing at Cafe No, and my, I had these friends in high school who were a bit older than me. And they were into like very like out stuff, you know, they were into, they showed me Pharaoh Sanders and John Zorn and Archie Shep. Like I knew a lot about that stuff before I knew a lot about some other more straight ahead stuff. Mm. So I, I hadn't necessarily made a distinction um, between, that one was sort of acceptable and one wasn't. I just it's kind a- of... It's perfect. I didn't have a problem with that. Yeah, it was perfect. It was perfect. And um, but at the same time, George was also very rigorous in terms in terms of like having me learn tunes. He was having me learn lots of tunes for every lesson, like memorize to be able to play the melodies and hard tunes as well. And he was the first one who kind of impressed upon me that I needed to build up a repertoire, you know, and like really know the tunes inside and out. And that and I was working really hard and he changed around my embouchure and mm. it was just like so intense like and so thorough. You Did know? he have any advice on how to uh, build up a repertoire uh, in that way? He was just like, here's five tunes. You need to be able to play them for next time. <laughs> you know, okay. that's it. Like, 
and and that's that was amazing and i was like trying to find the recordings and i i couldn't always find them you know so and i didn't have a real book it was really hard to get a real book back then mm. for me i don't know what it's like I don't know. I didn't know where you got it. And I thought it was illegal to have it. It probably is. <laughs> mm. So I didn't have a real book. And like, so I was trying to find this stuff out. It was so hard, man. And he was having me learn these really weird tunes. <laughs> <laughs> like what? You know, I was thinking about the other day, like Tones for Jones Bones. Mm-hmm. What? Okay. Yeah. I, I couldn't get that record. What was it yeah. like a Blue Mitchell record? I, I mean, how would I get this? This is like pre-internet. Mm, right. How was I going to hear Tones for There was no CD of it. <laughs> I mean, there's one record so by Chicoria, the... like uh, Chick's record is called like that, right? And that's a song yeah, of his. But that I was think. after the Blue Mitchell one, was it? It's uh, very I'm not obscure. sure. Yeah. It was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I couldn't find either because what was I going to do? It's like, <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't know, you know, eventually, th- this was another like total blessing in my life. There's this. There was a record shop again, like disproportionate. Maybe where I grew up was actually hipper than I think, but <laughs> it's, it, there was also a record shop called Amadeus Records. It was mostly classical music, but the guy who ran it had incredible taste, and he 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 stocked a jazz section that was like selective but very very hip. Like, mm. um, and and back then, you know, stuff was just starting to make it to CDs, so. It was hard to find, you know, the only stuff was like Miles Columbia and Duke and like the obvious Blue Note records. But it was before they had kind of like started getting all that stuff on the CD. Mm. So it was difficult to find that stuff, you know, it was very hard. And this guy, Jim, was such a great guy. Like once he got the sense that I was like buying this stuff, he would be like, do you know about this and that? And of course I didn't, you know, I. I didn't know anything. So he started making me tapes. Can you believe it? The guy at the... <laughs> I still listen to these tapes, man. I was listening to one the other day. He knew I was into Sonny Stitt, so he made me a tape of um, all these Sonny Stitt. You know, the first, he made me a tape of Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins and Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah. I had not heard that. I, I was listening to all this 70s Sonny Stitt. He was like, man, have you heard Sunny Side Up or whatever? I was yeah. Like, you know, he made me a tape and like super detailed annotation, who's on the personnel, the date, where it was recorded, yeah. you know. And so he started being like my source for rare Blue Note stuff. He had all the stuff at home on vinyl and he started lending it to me. So I think wow. he's the one who got me some of those recordings so I could learn the tunes, you know. So so I was like building up repertoire that way. And um, and it was so exciting having to do that hunting to, mm. to access it. This is something that like I feel like I can't even explain this to people now who are learning jazz now, like how and it was probably a little easier there, too, maybe, because like I remember going to Germany in like 99 or something. First time I went went to Europe, 1999 or 98 or something and going to this record store in Munich and like finding all these miles records that I didn't even know existed, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, how are these here? This is like American <laughs> jazz. And by that point I had started shopping at record stores in Boston, you know, after my lessons in Georgia, I was yeah. going to Tower Records or whatever. I remember I went to this place in Munich and they had Miles the the, the concert with Sam Rivers, the quintet mm-hmm. with Sam Rivers. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. And I was like, how am I here in Munich? Like and in the record store has this record that like 
So I think they were better stocked, actually. Mm -hmm. There were those imports and Japanese imports. Yeah. So I had no access. And it's so funny now to think about, like, that you could just go on YouTube and find any of that stuff. And that's amazing. But there was the pleasure of the of the hunt, you know. Right. Yeah. To like, I remember track that these too. records down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was beautiful. And I feel bad for people who don't have to do that now, because I I really. It, there was a, a there it was like. A little less controlled, like something would come into your life, or I was talking to somebody the other day about how my friend Anders about how, you'd know about a record for so long before you actually were able to hear it yeah you know it so you build you. up this expectation yeah it connects you to the to the to the music so much more it's more yeah. emotional it's more personal it's really funny mm -hmm. like and i thought of this fun project which would be to like record try to record the record like you know if that ever was able to happen again and i is like you know to make the music that, you know, that you're imagining that record sounds like. I, well, I remember yeah. there's a Larry Young, Larry Young Unity, you know, that record, mm. of course, like I got that, that like was on CD. And then I found out about the one with Sam Rivers and it was like driving me crazy. I yeah. And Grant Green, maybe. I can't remember who else was on. I think it was it's driving Elvin. me nuts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't remember now what it's called, but anyway, that record, like knowing about it, was just driving me crazy. Like yeah. I needed to. <laughs> yeah. And I was obsessed. I think on the back of those Blue Note records, you could read about the other releases, but it was so frustrating that you couldn't. So that one, I was just going nuts, man. And like for for months, maybe years, just like obsessing about what that band sounded like. <laughs> and then I think I got it, and it wasn't even like it's good, but. I should probably go back to it, but of course it was going to be a letdown because I'd built it up sure. like crazy, yeah. you know, but I thought it'd be a funny project to like try to make a recording of what you think it sounds like, yeah. you know, like try to make that recording. But anyway, that guy at that record store, you know, it's just like gave me so much um, and it all meant a hell of a lot because mm. um, and, and George sort of like led me toward this stuff with some of those tunes. I mean, they were standards as well, but he would throw in these weird ones. And I I wonder in retrospect, if it was sort of, if he was trying to like kind of set me on a, on a, on the, on the trail a little bit. Mm. But um, yeah, that was such a, it still is such an important relationship, man. It's like, I feel very lucky that, that I had that, you know, and then he brought me into the New England Conservatory thing, uh, despite the fact that I was not ready in a lot of ways. Um, and and again, you know, a tribute to like his maturity. Once I got there, he was like, you don't have to study with me. You know, like, I don't think his expectation. He knew that Braganzi and Danilo, all these other people so he was very like generous, and actually, I ended up studying with him anyway for a lot of it. But, um, uh, but it, you know, it was like, again, he could have been very controlling about that and been like, "I'm going to keep you," yeah. like, and it wasn't like that at all. You know, mm. it was just he brought me into the fold there, and then and then I made these other relationships that were so um, important. You know, Danilo being one of the big ones for sure. You know, yeah. when I first got there. Yeah.
Yeah. What are your memories of, um, of was, his teachings? Uh, I mean, they were just those what lessons were absolutely wild. Like he was so lit up. Um, I think he was at an interesting point in his life because he was really young when he got that job, you know, and and also on this, he was in transition in his career. I think like as an artist, like he was discovering lots of stuff and he and he brought it in like hot off the presses, you know, <laughs> everything he was experiencing. He was like, right, this is what we're working on now. You know, mm -hmm. I remember he made this recording with Tom Harrell and Dewey Redman. And he was like playing us the like roughs of it. And he's like about Dewey, you know, the way Dewey Redmond was playing. He's like, and like, he was like, this is what we need to deal with now. And like, yeah. we need to work on Dewey Redmond, <laughs> you know, and then he'd go off and do something to somebody else. And it was all so current, you know. That's nice and very, very inviting very for the students, right? I mean, oh, so it... generous. So yeah. generous. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were other teachers, of course, who, keep their powder a little drier you know be like well my professional thing is what it is and or they might have been shy or worried that students wouldn't relate to it or uh, there's lots of mm. reasons but his thing was just like wide open you know it was like and he had a lot of stuff he was working on and he was just like let's work on this you know like mm. i remember Tr tristano he was um he was into tristano when, it, when i first started studying with him And he had me like learn all those Tristano solos from that record, New York Improvisations. It's transcribed them all and learned to play them all. And then it's like that was a heavy experience, like big influence, mm. you know. And then it was Wayne. Then he got the gig with Wayne. And it was all about the way that band was rehearsing and sh telling us about that. And it was just um, incredibly exciting, like... What did he tell you his... about the the re uh, rehearsal process? Oh, I mean, you know, you know all the you heard all the stories, right? It's like um Wayne was actively trying to it seemed like create a a totally bewildering situation, you know. I mean, he was taking these musicians who were absolutely rock solid um in their understanding of what they did and he was trying to bring them back to square one you know mm. <laughs> i mean i just read an, an amazing little essay by jason moran about him playing that gig and it was the same mm -hmm. thing yeah it's like wayne saying something about you know i don't compose i decompose he's he's just trying he seems like he with that band he was always trying to get people to to work from a place of total unknowing you know And and that's what, you know, I think Danilo was, you know, it was about that, like shaking it up yeah, and, and working from a, a much more kind of immediate position where there are many more possibilities than if you're working within a kind of known idiom or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know like I say, complicated. It's like a jazz program that has all those sort of little cultural uh, thing, uh, dysfunctions in a way um, mm -hmm. and differences of opinion and, and it's an institution. And so, so it was uh, a live issue <laughs> learning music there, but I, and I, and that was stressful at the time, of course, but, 
in retrospect, it was it made it richer because we had a lot to. Um, we, you know, we were trying to approach it critically, and probably went too far. You know, mm. we rejected probably more of what was on offer than we should have than I than I should have. Mm-hmm. I say we. I mean, I had some good friends there. And, um, for example, George Russell, like he's somebody who I think about now. And I wish I had been mature enough to just accept what he had to offer, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a teacher. I was freaked out by the cult around him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was like, you know, I was just, I, I was intimidated. And, and I, um, for that reason, I didn't get as much out of that experience with him as I could have, you know, that's a great one for like the Robert Cohn. I wish I could go back and, and do that George Russell stuff. Yeah. With the, knowing what I know. Right. <laughs> you know, but I got, but, but that, um, that said, I, you know, play, playing in his bands was like a major, major learning experience as well. Mm. Yeah, playing that repertoire, and he was so scary and hard on us about it. And <clears throat> yeah, some of the most challenging music I've ever played. That George wow. Russell stuff. What was so challenging? Oh, so hard. I mean, I wasn't a very good reader to begin with. You know, I mm. could barely read. I'm still not amazing, but then I've come into university. I could barely read in a in a lot of ways. And he's putting these charts in front of us, like Stratus Funk and all this stuff, you know, like um, Manhattan Rico, all just like all this, like really hard and really fast. Like the tempos were insane. And and I didn't quite understand what he wanted us to do in the solos. Like I was aware of the Lydian chromatic concept and that that should somehow relate. But of course, I didn't understand it. I hadn't mm. studied it. And But actually, all he really wanted us to do when it came down to, he just wanted us to go nuts. Like he wanted energy, you know, Mm. I don't think he was that concerned about, he always lit up when we would like go crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what he wanted, you know, Mm. but, um, interesting guy, you know, but that music was, yeah, it was, it was really hard, really hard to, to know how to play it. And I bought all the records and I was listening to them and, I don't think he actually wanted a recreation of those. I think he wanted something else. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. to work on that music a little bit more. Find some new he things. He saw in... it as a, as an, it was alive for him. I mm. think those pieces had a life of their own by that point. That's the sense mm-hmm. I got. And so, you know, the recordings of them from the sixties were like the touchstones, but I think he, um, as far as he was concerned, it, you know, the, we were bringing the composition was already alive and we were just sort of like participating in it. You know what I mean? Mm. So that was really amazing. Mind you, like I was in that was my first year. I was 18 years old. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> so way in over my head mm. in a great way. Um I mean, I'm talking about all of this stuff because, I, like I say, it's just, um, I can't, like, 
express enough like how um it's the most important thing to talk about in a way i think mm -hmm. you know what other people made available to you either as teachers or through recordings you know like how do we repay that debt like you know yeah i feel the same I way think about a lot also i feel uh if um i feel even like we have had the opportunity to learn from certain people either by having lessons with them or having played with them or having hung out with them. I think we owe the other people who haven't had that opportunity to to pass on the what we've learned from them. I mean, this is also why I'm doing these interviews, you know. Um, mm. In a way, mm. uh, you've been, you have had certain kinds of... Uh, experiences and now it's it's time to share them with others so others can appreciate and learn from from them you know whenever i um i i get asked about how was it like to play with such and such sometimes people don't ask that question because um it's obvious to ask that question and they feel like you don't want to talk about it because you get asked that, that all the time right so, because I, I, I've done a, um, a tour and a recording with John Schofield, sometimes people ask me about that. And sometimes people say, before they ask me, they're like, uh, you're gonna get probably asked this all the time, but what was it like to play with him? And I always feel like, man, I'm, I'm down to, to talk about this because it makes me relive that uh, um, experience again. And, and it makes me, mm. uh, and by sharing it with others, it's not just me having that experience it's somebody else having that experience also, because when we relate part of that experience jumps onto the other guy, you know, I really like that. Mm. So now you talking about those lessons, I felt like I'm in the lesson too. Mm, mm. No, that's and, good. And that's yeah, maybe that's one good. way to, to pay back that debt. I think, you know, mm. Yeah, it makes makes me appreciate certain people or certain experiences that you have had, and view those persons in another light. I think that's powerful. It is powerful, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's heavy. Can, Te teaching relationships are so powerful. Um, I'd like to go back to Rainbow. Uh, and something that you've said earlier uh, that that certain pieces or stuff from the past keeps on working through through throughout time I, i'm wondering how those pieces keep evolving for you do you sometimes go back to them and play some of them and um or if not how do they evolve for you if you don't even play them yeah, no, those are, I would never probably ever play those again. Yeah, those mm. are pretty much, um, I would never, I don't think I'd ever want to play those again, you know. Um, I ca I'm kind of happy with those just existing mm. as recordings and uh, and forever like that. And um, I have played them live a bit, I mean, um, with Kit, um we we played a couple of those around the time that it came out maybe um and that was cool it was it felt good to play them live um 
I mean, I'm not really one for going back to old repertoire, really. I, I think I'm, I just, for me, it has a fairly limited lifespan, mm-hmm. especially once I've recorded it. I have a kind of backwards, a lot of people, the recording is the begin is the, well, I don't know. I don't know. I know what you're about to say. It's maybe you know, not true. I mean, there's two different ways, right? It's like you can record it and that can be a starting point or right. the recording can be the end point. I mean, for me, it's both. I think I had a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun playing music that I've recorded already um, with other pe- and playing it with other people, and that's felt good. Um, the stuff on Rainbow was never... I never even had a thought of performing that stuff. So really, I mean, with the exception of the last track, which was actually written to play with a band before I made that record. Most of the others, they would be very difficult actually to play live because they're kind of based on sort of like very specific musical situations and constructed and not in real time, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think it would be a little bit frustrating. Um, Yeah, I would rather write something to play probably than revisit that stuff mm-hmm. yeah yeah maybe yeah. you can tell me a little bit about the process of putting together an album like that or or also uh, uh reality or stuff like that uh where yeah. it's it's mostly layered on on top of each other and it's all yeah. you and uh it makes perfect sense and it's so unique and i feel like where do you start i mean with some of the where does songs it start? yeah um, where does it start does it, hmm. does it start with composition per se or is it sometimes also you just start recording and build on top of that or um yeah maybe you can talk me a bit a little bit into uh, about yeah. about the process yeah yeah well it's pretty pretty um inconsistent i mean despite the fact that they're all sort of the outcome of like multi-track recording uh i use that i've used it in pretty different ways and in my mind it's pretty different you know like real uh that rainbow record um was um i recorded those really really slowly um and was pretty uh detailed with how all the parts were recorded and how they fit together and um and a lot of those started from things i was doing on piano on fender roads and and um um actually that that record is um a lot of the stuff on that record um started with small ideas that kind of developed um, I was t- going for a lot of walks around that time. So just mm. kind of thinking through things to the point where I felt like I could pretty much, it was just a matter of recording by the time it got, you know, so that I pretty much knew how I wanted like 70% of it to sound. And the other 30 came about just through having fun with recording, being like, oh, you know, maybe this needs to be here and kind of understanding what it needed to be. And mm. then going probably overboard with that um reality was very different so so um 
uh, that one was all based upon melodies. Almost all of them were melodies that <clears throat> I came up with through playing sax, practicing saxophone. Um, and I was trying to write stuff that I could play solo. Mm. So those were all written to be solo pieces. Yeah. So the, all of those started with melody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so I was composing basically from the top down. Yeah. And trying to think about, um, you know, and, and the idea with the majority of those was that it would just be a melody that I repeated over and over again and embellished um, with other instruments, you know, improvised by improvising. Mm. So it was much less composed, actually. Um, it was much more about just recording responses to that melody, to the repeated melody, and, yeah. and having those responses be the arrangement. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's any exceptions to that, but I think that's pretty much the the way all of those go. You know, it's just a repeated melody that's embellished. And, you know, the record that I just finished is like... Whoa, that's good news. Yeah, yeah. So I just finished a record um, that most of, well, a lot of that stuff is taking it to, taking that approach further by just basically improvising. And uh, there, there's some stuff on there where I am recording and, and it's to totally improvised. And then all of the subsequent uh, overdubs are responses to that. Um, so it's free. It's basically free improvisation, but um, um, but it's all me. Yeah. Um, and that feels like a natural extension of what was happening on those other records. Um, I mean, this this new record. There's also a fair amount of very constructed stuff as well. It's kind of a mixed bag because it was recorded over a long period of time. When will you release it? Uh, things gonna be summer, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this summer. Oh man, yeah. looking forward to hear it. Yeah, um, me too. Me mm -hmm. too. Yeah. How how is this uh, um, development for you? How did it happen in terms of um, collaborating with people and then deciding, okay, there's stuff that I have to do on my own, and really uh, mm. getting a um, a personal approach to that, because it doesn't sound like okay, here's a loop station or whatever and I'm going to play on top of that. You know, mm, it really, mm. I think you're very creative with the medium of, of uh, recording by yourself and, and, and doing it on your own because I feel like you have a certain, yeah, you have a, you have a very distinguished sound on all of those instruments that you're using. So mm. the palette keeps on growing and, but it sounds like sometimes it's a weird thing sometimes hearing the same sax saxophone player play two different lines, it, it, it has a funny feeling sometimes. I know, I'm, I'm not mm. sure if you know what I mean. Be having the same sound playing sometimes in unison or, you know, that can have a funny feeling for me, you know? Oh yeah. But with you, yeah. it feels Very like, yeah. yeah, but with you, it feels, it feels right. It feels right. Um, oh, thanks. Pablo. <clears throat> and yeah, be, because maybe, It, it has been a, a long development for you to, to go in this direction and, and uh, perfecting mm. it to a, to a certain point. So I'm wondering how did you, yeah, where did it happen that where you felt, okay, I think I'm, I have to do things on my own? 
it was kind of a natural progression. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was any one moment when I um, decided that 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 was how it was going to be. I mean, when I was in college, we, my friend Elliot and I, who's a, a great musician, Elliot Krimsky, he's got a, he, he goes by the well, he goes by his own name now, and he also had a band called Glass Ghost. Um, it was that is amazing. Um, but we we were we are very good friends and we're living together in college and we bought a four track actually I still have it I want to show it to you actually yeah this machine <laughs> this one this is like I can't throw this away because it's the one we bought in 1996 sure at Guitar Center we split it so half of this still belongs to <laughs> <laughs> we'd have to like negotiate who got to use it when. Yeah. So I got one of these with one of those mini disc microphones, the Sony, which are amazing. They're like um, electric condenser microphones, <clears throat> battery operated mic. And we started making stuff on on four tracks, just messing mm. around. And I immediately like, like a lot of people probably like that just lit me up immediately. I I I really related to that way of working. Um, just on a pretty like natural level because i i just was so excited by being able to make music you know um by myself you know mm-hmm. and 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 that control was really like thrilling um like being able to control every aspect of the production and um just all of it and the sound was was so interesting like starting to learn about getting different sounds and we were doing this in our bedrooms and i remember getting really uh into learning about how things sound in different parts of the room and where to put that one mic and so i love doing that and i'm and and i got into some weird stuff listening i was listening back to some of the stuff the other day and i was doing things like taping the radio and doing all these overlays kind of like um they're kind of like minimalist pieces i mean i had no idea what that meant but i in a naive way was kind of like what would happen if i like took this little excerpt from the thing i recorded on the radio and repeated it over and over again and then overlaid it as really out stuff you know but I, i listening to it i really really like it um so I was doing all kinds of stuff like that just for fun. And I, di- I didn't in any way associate it with my main thing, which at that point was playing, you know, jazz with with my friends in Bo- Boston. Um, and I didn't even share this stuff with them, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think I would have been pretty self-conscious about that. But Elliot and I were, were doing a lot of it. And, and then I remember, like, at... New England Conservatory, you have like these final, can't remember what you call them, but like when you present like your final kind of thing, recital. your work, um, it's not, well, we had a recital, but we also had this thing where we had to like present recordings, recorded examples of things we've done, um, like as it was like a final sort of like jury or something. I don't know what you call it, but mm-hmm. anyway, I was trying to th- think of what I wanted to do and and then I decided, I was like, what the hell? Like, I'm going to bring in one of these tapes to show them. <clears throat> At that point, I was like, I just didn't care, you know? Yeah. I was so confused about what I did and so disillusioned about, like, jazz and all that stuff. Like, 
was just like, I'm going to bring one of these tapes. And they were like, wow, that's cool. You know, they kind of validated it for me, which I'm, I remember Garzon might've been there too, or maybe it was Jerry Braganzi. It was like these people who I was like kind of nervous what they would think. And they were like, yeah, it's cool. It's like, and, and Alan Chase, who was the head of the program was like, have you heard this, you know, this and that, and like other things that it reminded him of. So I think that was the first time it sort of like validated it for me in a way. Mm. And again, like I'm very thankful for them, not just like totally rejecting it. And so (laughs) I think that, made me feel like maybe it was it could be a thing Mm. and and then when I moved to New York with Elliot and those guys like I just kept doing it you know it was like the thing that really filled me up because I was struggling with like playing sessions and stuff it was like very disheartening for me when I got to New York and and trying to survive and um I just like New York was a very um I mean, this is going to take us somewhere else, but like, so I I moved to New York, like, um, at a very like delicate time, you know, like right after September 11th, Mm. um, like right after, like I, I took a sublet, which was Jorge's old room in Bill McHenry's house on Adelphi street, which is like this historical, (laughs) So many people have been through this place. Like, actually, it wasn't Jorge's room; it was a room upstairs from him. Um, living with Bill McHenry for that winter, um, and then I moved back to save up some money, and then I moved again to Sunset Park, Brooklyn, a little bit further south. And it, I was just like trying to play sessions, and but at the same time, also like going out to all these other kinds of gigs and discovering so much music and i mean it was a really exciting time to be in new york i have to say i know everybody always says that Mm. but that time like i heard a lot of great music but i didn't i wasn't connecting with the scene that i moved there to check out that was the irony because i Mm -hmm. knew about through ben street i knew about like kurt rosenwinkel and mark turner and you know myron walden and Brian Blade, all those guys that like small scene. Um, I moved there, but I missed the boat because by the time I got there, I mean, they were still playing in town a bit, but by that point they had already sort of left. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, so I was like, what do I do? Like that, that <laughs> I wanted to, you know, you wanted to experience that. Um, yeah. I wanted to be in like smalls mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Time and Smalls again. was still amazing. Yeah, mm. exactly. Smalls was incredible back then, you know, as I'm sure it still is. Incredible musicians and and the feeling of it. And I was going to the Vanguard all the time, you know. Um, I, I was going out a lot to see jazz and hear jazz, and I heard some amazing stuff. But um, somehow I thought I would, like, connect with that scene, and I was just kind of... It just didn't happen. I mean the way I imagined it would, you know, and instead I was going out to hear all these, I got this job, uh, awful job that I was eventually fired from um, working in this place, Mama's Kitchen in the, in the Lower East Side. And it just so happened that like a lot of the people who worked there were like on this uh, scene of like experimental music and disco and house, like, and I had a friend from high school who was also like an avid record collector and he worked at a store called Other Music, um, 
and he and and a lot of those people were friends and they were taking me to gigs like of stuff that was not jazz and um and that was just like blowing me away you know mm. a, a really exciting moment um for music you know like experimental music um and electronic music um and there was a bit of crossover with things that i knew about um for example at this club tonic which was like an offshoot of the knitting factory they were having gigs there that i remember being pretty pretty amazing Hmm. um but you know i was going to see these bands playing um in venues and and parties and it had nothing to do with jazz but it felt really inspiring and exciting so it left me in this weird position where i'd moved to new york to have the like uh, uh traditional jazz initiation into that world and it wasn't happening I, what i was actually being initiated into was a totally different thing yeah and so i i had no center basically with my practice <laughs> mm. and so the way that i eventually decided i was going to or didn't decide but the, the the way it was easiest for me to resolve these these uh, i like inspirations was through recording by myself because i didn't have to there was there was it was very clear to me in that context how i would bring things together yeah because i had all the control to work with the sounds you know yeah um and it's and and so when i made that horses record that um started as recordings on this four track yeah um and do you still have them and i put yeah oh yeah i've got those demos yeah and the idea was to release those you know and at the time i was playing with i was playing a lot with um this guy luke temple he he had a band called here we go magic he's an amazing musician um and I, i was doing a lot with him and touring with him and he had this record deal he got a record deal to make a record out in seattle for a label called mill pond and I went out to work on that record with him in Seattle and I and I played the demos to the guy, Mike, who owned the label. He was like, let's do a record, you know, a, like proper record of this music. And so I had this opportunity to record that music in this incredible studio over the course of a week with a great engineer. And just like, I've never done it since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the first and last time. Um, yeah. And so... I don't know. And then after that, it was, I don't know. Yeah. And after that, I kind of, I just kept returning to the multi-track thing as like a center, basically. Yeah. Even when I was playing with a lot of people, it felt uh, somehow like an authentic way for me of being able to do music that felt like it was mine. Uh, I don't know why, you know. Um, and so... And it's still the way I love to work. I love coming in here and just like messing around, you know. Yeah. And I love performing. I love playing with other people too. And I've actually realized that even more now that it's been taken away. Like, mm. I just like, that's... Because when lockdown started happening, I was like, okay, like, well, if I can get to the studio, it's fine. Like, I'll yeah. make like a few records, you know, great. <laughs> but actually, like, the energy for me 
that fuels that stuff that I do here, I think it starts to, I realize now that it comes from playing with people. I can't take it out of the equation. I think they, yeah. they fuel each other. Right. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. Um, totally. Yeah. I think I'm probably more okay than some people working on my own because I do it the majority of the time. But I think I don't take for granted how much I need input, you know, and and, ex and playing is still like, so central you know mm -hmm. um when when we before uh, uh just briefly touched on the concert we played together you had a very strong reaction to that <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, maybe you can tell me where that came from what, what yeah what you think about because i i think about that concert uh quite often actually and But I hadn't really? listened to the yeah. recording uh, for quite a while. But yeah, the days leading up to this, I was also going back to that. And mm, uh, mm. yeah, it was so great to hear you in that context. And to because I mainly heard you in the context of, of Rainbow and those kind of records. Mm, and mm. therefore, the um, the desire to, to play with you grew, grew inside of me. So I asked you to, to come to Cologne. And it was so great to hear you with Jorge and with Matthias and to, to get to play with you. But I'm wondering what your perspective of, of that concert was. Um, I mean, it was a great experience from the perspective of I, I don't do that much. Um, like play with musicians I don't know, you know, for the first time on the gig. Like mm -hmm. I... I know that's a convention in jazz, certainly from a career point of view, but I just, and it used to be a big part of what I did, but these days I, I just, I don't do it much. Um, and I think there's a skill set that goes a lot, that makes that easier or that makes it um, feel less intimidating. Um, Uh, it's like a general skill set, you know, in, in, um, and it's, that, that skill set's partly musical and it's also partly personal, you know, mm. and that gig was an interesting opportunity to under, to realize that I don't have those skills. <laughs> <laughs> you know I didn't I mean? feel that like, at all, man. I didn't feel that at oh, all. Listen, I'm not trying to put myself down at all. It is, this is not this is in no way um you know it's fine and it was fun for that reason it's interesting it was interesting because i was like okay um this is like i need to find a way to fit into this you know right now like in front of this <laughs> yeah. audience <laughs> yeah um and and so that was really good for me to do um and i i love doing i i would like to do more of it i mean um but it's i think to be totally successful at it i would need to like a hundred percent commit to how out of control it would be and i think there's still a part of me that like a professionalism part of me that feels like i have to fulfill a more um, general brief, musical brief, in order to, you know, 
do my job. Um, mm. And so until I'm 100% able to let go of that, then I don't know if I'd feel like you're getting the guy you hear on those records. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, this is total, like, I'm being honest here. Mm. Like, and and maybe it's an unrealistic expectation that, like, that that should even be the same person, you know, mm. or that I'd ever be able to do that. Because mm -hmm. what I do in here is really weird and personal and, and, and in a lot of ways bears little relationship to what you could maybe do with a band, you know, who's playing tunes. I don't know. Mm. I don't have many opportunities to like find that out. Yeah. But I guess maybe like if I'm lucky enough to live long enough to keep doing this, there'll be a, a day when like I show up at a gig like that and I'm just like, okay, it's like the same as being here. Just like yeah. do what I do. <laughs> mm. And it's, and, and, from my perspective, it's totally successful. Mm. Um, I don't think that was my impression on, like, for me personally on that gig, because I just felt like I, I, I didn't know how to commit um, to that mindset because I, you know, I wanted to like be able to hang also, mm. you know what I mean? And Jorge is, you know, I mean, he's not a drummer that you, he's such an incredible drummer and he's not one that you can just like, you have to like really have it together to play with him. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I he's was not thinking... like a drummer that you can sort of passively, and I say this in, this is a hundred percent the reason I love him as a drummer. Yeah. And, and the same with people like Jeff Williams, all great drummers, you know, it's like, you can't just like they're not there to make your life easy it's like mm -hmm. you need to be ready to play with people like that you know mm -hmm. and and another thing that was going on was like i wasn't a hundred percent sure that what i do in the studio prepared me to play with jorge rossi you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like deep what and i don't mind admitting that so when i heard that i listened to that recording once and i was just like damn like this like i it i sound to me i sounded like i would have needed needed like to think about how to approach that situation like to to get the most out of myself you know mm. like and to be able to hang in a way that felt authentic to me i mean this is like very honest but i think maybe it could be helpful Totally, yeah. I think all musicians feel this way. They feel they go through these things, you know. It's like they see themselves, and then, and then, like, there's to be able to see it again, like, on YouTube, and it's there, and like, and it's that. Talk about vulnerable, man. Like, I like it's about being, um, for me, like, okay with having a YouTube video up there where I'm like, in my mind, like sort of lost you know what i mean mm. like is that okay i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yes it has to be right it has to be uh -huh. it's like we want to curate the whole thing we want to curate 
our egos want to curate the entire deal, you know, mm. and have the YouTube video we like the most come up where we had creative control and it represents our thing. Like, mm. that's like, we want to curate who we want to be and who we think we are, you know? And I think that control is probably, that's not, you know, that could get out of control. That that need for control could get out of control. Yeah. <laughs> it won't get us there. So I like throwing yeah. myself into these situations because it's like the opposite of this place. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the opposite. And I need that. I I it, that really that's part of what fuels me in what I do here is like having that sense of ah like unknowing and and insecurity and it just lets me check in with all that lack of control which i want to be in touch with because it's too comfortable here and here sometimes you know <laughs> man i that's the <laughs> reason i started doing this concert series because i had been and still I'm, i'm still working with the guys i i connected with uh, when i was studying which is my trio and now it has been together for 15 years so um i think it was in yeah 2017 so that's 11 years into playing with the same guys as my main thing, which was also the thing that was really keeping me busy, which was my own thing. Um, I wanted to have something, you know, I was, you know, um, how should I say, it? quite successful with the trio, which meant we were playing a lot, which meant I wasn't playing as much with other people which was kind of the downside of being successful with one thing and you know which i was super and still am super thankful but it i wanted to have the opportunity to play with others and to have because i like them this moment of having a first meeting with somebody um having the moment where everybody because everybody's so attentive and everybody's so watching out for everyone making everybody feel comfortable And there's a vulnerability in that too, I feel, um, where where everybody is like, yeah, I, I don't know. How how did he mean this note? You know, you're listening very, very close for, uh, very, very, yeah, close, uh, closely. And um, so this is why I started the concert series to have uh, the, um, in a way, my, my, my trio is your studio. Uh, you know, it's it's similar. It feels it feels very very um, uh, close and very very uh, secure also, and and very comfortable and very uh, familiar. Although we're we're stretching out, we're you know we're looking for new stuff when we play. But this concert series was always about putting people together that haven't played as much together or haven't played at all together having a new repertoire each time. And I've learned so much doing these concerts in a row because whenever then I listen back to the recording, I feel like, oh man, you should have done less or you should have helped more or you should have, you know, uh, how could I, can I make this situation, which is uh, new for other people as, as well, how can I make it more easy for them or how can I make it more exciting for them or w whatever, you know. So for you that video that is up there it feels that way but for me it feels so great how you play in this moment to see you in this moment 
because I love all your work. I love I love your music. But to see you in this context just gives another perspective for me that is so interesting to have on top of your work. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. I mean, like I say, I mean, I I think the ideal is just that, like, it's not about me, you know. Mm. It really, it really isn't. I mean, I, 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 I spent so much time, especially when I was trying to, trying to play jazz and trying to feel legit as a jazz musician. Like, nearly every experience would be, would be um, the subject of some deep criticism on my part, um, and. Um, and unfortunately, I think I just the default became to to like engage other people, other band members, and probably the audience too in that in that criticism. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. so you like, and and I'm not the only one. And and I and I unfortunately I think I learned that from other jazz musicians. Some a, a certain certain, you know, when it's like, and I. I like it's actually interesting once i played a gig and a friend of mine who's not a musician she's uh she's in perform like more uh theatrical performance and experimental performance art and she, i played this gig and afterwards she was like oh i love that whatever this was really good and i was like oh you know whatever like dark like yeah oh, i didn't i didn't think that was i didn't play very well blah blah, blah. and her thing was kind of like how dare you yeah she, you yeah. know, and 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 that really, actually blew my mind because I was like, oh yeah, like who am I to like bring her into that shit? Like that's <laughs> right. nothing to do with her. Yeah, it's nothing to do with me. Like why am I bringing her into this thing? It's like, you know, if I need to go through that, whatever. It's like I'll take that here maybe i'll talk about it with like another musician who i trust yeah you know and if it's a band i suppose you could have a conversation with the band and that could be productive what happened there but that can get out of control too what just happened it's like who cares it happened it's like it's <laughs> over <laughs> yeah if we need to sort that out we'll do it on the next gig you know mm. uh, or or on the next gig or in whatever but it's like this critical process is so ego driven, I think. And, and the, and I think it, it could be, it could be like, if you don't let people know that you endorse it, then maybe it opens up the space where it's okay for it not to be good. Cause you know, it's not good. I mean, who wants to pay for that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if you can't at least pretend to commit to what you've done, mm. like as part of the performance, even, you know, yeah. as part of the performance, be like, yeah, that's what I do. You know, mm. I hope you liked it. Yeah. Like if you don't like it, I'm sorry. You know, that's not your thing. Yeah. But to be like, oh, man, that was probably shitty. Right. Like, so if you didn't like it, like, you know, I know that already. It's no news to me. <laughs> You're <laughs> putting you down somebody bad, else's. It's like, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about your harmonic language uh, because it seems very very uh, yeah it seems very very you 
and right from the start from your first record it's like it's there and over the you know course of all these other records and also portals you know what a great record man uh, sorry um, <laughs> <laughs> just listen to that this morning and it's also so you and it's so connected also to horses in a way and to that harmonic language and i'm wondering where this came from uh and how you uh yeah what what you kind of gravitate towards harmony you mean yeah yeah man i wish i had something organized to tell you about that i i, I just um it's I don't have an approach. Um, it's so much trial and error, you know, because I'm not a pianist, you see. So it's like a lot of times I don't, I'm aware of what's going on when I'm playing piano. Um, but a lot of it is surprising me, is a surprise to me, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> yeah. So you arrive and at something and then you go like, oh, what's this? How did I come here? Yeah, or I might not even... Yeah, sometimes that what's this moment, sometimes that's not there either. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of it is... Um, I don't know what it is, you know. Like, for example, um, this chord. I wonder if you'll be able to hear it. Yeah. It reminds me of so it's this. like a major it's like a sus chord that also has a major major third and a major seventh yeah um I, I mean it? i wouldn't i don't i've never known how to write that that's a good example of something that like when i start thinking about what is this it's like i well it's kind of like everything at the same time you know mm -hmm. it reminds me of that one song of yours um is it on rainbow? There's... It's on everything. <laughs> yeah, I, you know? I mean that. Yeah, I use that chord a lot. I mean, um, but it's a good example of something that's just like it's not from any sort of. It's just like a mistake, kind of that is formalized for me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot, mo I'd say most of my, the majority of my harmony is like that. You know, it's by ear. Um, yeah. and, and, and so there's, n I can't really generalize about um, how I get to it or where, or, or I, I, ca I can't sort of um, analyze it. I mean, one thing I can say is um, my sense of how I want to use harmony is getting simpler and simpler the more I make music. That's for sure. Now yeah. I'm I'm very interested in triads. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on reality, there's basically no seventh chords. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested. I like triads and I like inversions. And now that I'm learning guitar, like even more so. Like, mm. you know, I I'm at this point. I feel like I can get a lot of mileage over very small chord shapes. You know, mm. but with not much information on them. You know, so I. That's kind of where I'm at with harmony now. But but like for me, harmony is like 
like the harmonic aspect of music is like where it starts to take me into like moods or or like different spaces you know that's what i like when i really get like lit up by music it's almost always a harmonic thing mm-hmm. because it just feels like it puts me in a place that's like different to this world that's always a harmonic thing melody feels more bound to this world like because it's linguistic in a way so like mm-hmm. the melodic music i love you know it's like you know like ornette like yeah. that's like a person thing like i love that person who's speaking those melodies you know but with harmony it's like it's there's no people there it's like it's like a planet it's like a different world you know that's where i get when i like find something that's where i want to get with with music like through harmony is like kind of create a space that's unfamiliar you know yeah i love that yeah that's yeah it's sort of something you can do with chords in a weird way i Mm -hmm. i feel like you know um so all the composers i love i feel like are the ones who do that you know with with chords um Mm. you posted a playlist of uh, certain kinds of music uh yeah the 10 seconds man That was so deep. I, I was really into. Isn't that a cool exercise? Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool, and uh, there was a lot of music that I knew already, but there was also a lot of music that I haven't heard before, and, and oh, really? it was really inspiring for me. And that was actually yeah, you you just touched on something that I wanted to t- talk to you about because all of these examples had something in common. <laughs> and I, I couldn't yeah. I couldn't put it into words, but I, I was it made me uh, want to ask you what you're looking for in music. <laughs> oh yeah, because Question. it seems it What seems like for? it seems like it, there's there's obviously a lot of things that we look for in music, but it seems mm. like there was something that connected them all, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Mm, mm. I wonder what that was. I don't know. I mean, when I was writing about them, the thing I kept returning to, because it was a 10-second thing, he's like, George is like, 10 seconds. It's like, okay, if it's going to be 10 seconds, then it will probably be this like really energetic 10 seconds. On some level, it's going to be energetic because you probably wouldn't pick 10 seconds that are sort of like nothing happening, you know? <laughs> so a lot of them were like climactic but not all, you know, I guess yeah. not all. Um, I think all of those moments were like moments when it's just like you, like when I'm listening and it gets to a point in something where like, it feels like it's just, there's nothing that could explain it, but it's like you're out of yourself basically. Like, mm it's like ecstatic or it's um it transports me um all of those moments i was basically organizing that playlist around moments like that and i and i i can remember almost all of them like the time when i first heard it and had that feeling yeah yeah me too i, I love it's these unforgettable 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unforgettable. And then and it's totally permanent because every time I hear that stuff, it's the same. Like when I was making that playlist, I was just as lit up by those 10 seconds as I was the first time I heard them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I put on that um, Skies of America, that part of the Ornette record when he plays for the first time. <clears throat> I remember listening to that in Bill McHenry's house. That was his record. The first time I heard that, I was like shocked and terrified, like by how alien I felt like and how disoriented I was. And, um, and it still feel that part of that record still feels that way, you know, Yeah. still feels that way. And the Coltrane, um, on uh, softly as a morning sunrise when McCoy has been playing, playing for a while. And then, um, and Coltrane comes in to play for the first time. Again, it's like I had a tape, my second jazz tape, the best of John Coltrane. Um, mm. um, and and that track was maybe even the first one. And it was McCoy for ages playing solo. And then Elvin just like builds up to that moment. And it's like it feels like it feels like a sort of like some kind of the universe is forming in that moment or something. It's so cosmic, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, that word is so overused, but by cosmic, I mean, it's like the biggest skit, the largest scale energy ever, you know, yeah. those guys like create that. And it's not just them. It's like the sound of that recording too. how distorted it is. And yeah, so I think a lot of that is about energy, you know, and then Milton Nascimento, same thing. Like, yeah, there's so many moments on that record that are just like, where am I? Like, yeah, <laughs> this is not reality, you know? Yeah. But it is. It's like the most intense reality. So I think the music I gravitate toward, it all on some level or another has that. And like, you know, that's got to be like, for me, the guiding thing, you know? I mean, you can't get too crazy with that because then you get like a fiend and you're like, you sort yeah. of reject music that doesn't give you that feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a desperate place to be. Like, I also like listening to music cold and being like, this is making me feel nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's like still kind of lighting me up. Like Tristano is kind of like that for me. Like when I listen to Tristano, I'm like so removed, but mm-hmm. also like so deeply affected on some level. You know, it's so heavy, like, but it would never really make me feel that feeling i was describing before i like both you know like both sure yeah exactly my my daughter's been getting me into the beatles again and like because that's like my root like that's my first music and Mm. uh this and um she loves you the most obvious beatles song you know that's like the best Beatles. <laughs> it's so deep. It is yep. so deep. And it's so, it's like too bright. It's like the sun. Like mm. you can't see it. It's too yeah. big. Um, so you'd miss it because it's too obvious, you know? So mm-hmm. it can go the other way as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 